If you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to turn there to Psalm 73 with me. Uh, we're going to start out by reading this together. So uh, I'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible here. But follow along with me in your Bibles. Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant. And I saw the prosperity of the wicked, for there are no pains in their death, and their body is fat. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore pride is their necklace, and and the garment of violence covers them. Their eye bulges from fatness, the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression, they speak from on high. They have set their their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place. The waters of abundance are drunk by them. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked and always at ease. They have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. For I have been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. If I had said I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of your children When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken a hold of my right hand, and with your counsel you would guide me, and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish, and you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Please bow with me. Dear Heavenly Father, I just ask, Lord, that we, as we look into your word, that you would speak to us through your text. God, would you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. Lord, I just pray that we would all come away from here loving the words of Psalm 73, that they'd go with us today and into the rest of our lives. May we use them in our lives for here going forward. We just pray this. In Jesus' name. Well, I want to begin this morning by just calling to mind a theological concept. And I know that as you Bible college students will be well aware of this, the concept is really God's way of speaking to us or how God reveals himself to us. And that is through his general and special revelation. We think of those two concepts. What does general revelation refer to? Well, it's just simply God's witness of himself through creation to his creatures, to us. The way God speaks to us through what he has created. That is his general revelation. But general revelation has limitations. We cannot come to know Christ or be saved through the revelation that we find in general revelation. Therefore, we need special revelation. And what is special revelation? It's, It's God's direct, detailed, personal revelation of himself to us, primarily in his word. 
So we know God through his word. It's his detailed revelation. It's his clear revelation about what he requires of us, what he thinks of us, who we are, who he is. We know all of that through special revelation. You see, without special revelation, we would in fact go to hell because general revelation only gives us enough to damn us. It tells us enough about God for us to see that truth and then naturally in our sinful condition suppress that truth. And so Romans 1 tells us we're accountable to that. But in God's special revelation, he gives us a greater word, an enlightening word. And so that's important as we look into Psalm 73. And as we also come to Psalm 73, uh, I'd like you to know uh, really my friend Asaph here in this psalm. And you'll notice as you look at your Bible, right before your verse 1, there'll be that note, a psalm of Asaph. And that really is inspired text. That's the, sometimes we call it the heading of the psalm, but that's inspired. That's supposed to be there. That's part of the original word of God here. Asaph, as we know, is the, is the author of this psalm. Uh, I refer to him as Asaph. Probably a better way would be Asaph, but I just can't get over my American, so I'll keep calling him Asaph. Um, but if you are struggling with uh, any form of suffering or affliction, then I think you need to know Asaph. He is a helpful friend indeed. And um, what we'll, so we just want to know a little bit about him. Who is this Asaph? We, beyond what we know in the psalm, and actually we have much about him. First uh, Chronicles 25 reveals about him. I've put some references on the sheet there uh, if you wanted to track these down later. But several things. We know he was a Levite. We know he was a prophet, uh, which explains his role in writing scripture. Uh, he served under the direct supervision of King David. And he was put in a position to lead uh, worship in the religious system, the sacrificial system. He was a trained uh, singer, the text says. Um, and we know that the duration of his ministry spanned from the time of David to at least the time of David's, or Solomon, David's son's, construction of the temple. Because there with the dedication of the, the temple, the, the very first day of the temple, when the Shekinah glory descend, descended upon the temple, Asaph was there. And the text actually says, and I believe it's in 2 Chronicles 5, uh, when the, the Shekinah glory descended upon the temple, the priest could no longer stand. And we know that Asaph was there on this day. 2 Chronicles 29.30 tells us that even when King Hezekiah restored temple worship, they were still singing the songs of Asaph and the songs of David. So just as a little summary, Asaph was a prophet who wrote inspired songs about God. He led Israel in worship, and uh, he was remembered as a personal associate of David, and even mentioned on a similar level as King David. So, so this, is, this is the author of the psalm, Asaph. And as I mentioned, he's a friend of those who are suffering. And so I really have titled this message, uh, The Testimony of Asaph. The Testimony of Asaph, because he's going to share about his life. And Really, I believe the purpose in him writing this is to teach us about how to counsel troubled hearts. So in your mind, if you think Psalm 73, I think maybe you could remember these words, counsel for confused hearts. I think that's what we find here in Psalm 73. It's counsel for confused hearts. And so in this Psalm, Asaph will acknowledge about himself that he had, he had an embittered heart. And I'm sure that you have been there like I have. When your expectations in life go unmet, or when God takes a loved one unexpectedly, or when you expect God to give you this, but instead he gives you that. So when in those seasons, I ask you, where do you turn? Where do you go when your heart is confused? 
Well, here in the psalm, we'll see where Asaph went and what he did. This is the testimony of Asaph. And so with this, he kind of begins this psalm or this story of his life in a familiar way. Sort of how we might begin a story it's like as such, let me tell you about a story when and go on. Well, that's what the first couple verses or the preface of the psalm do. Look with me there at verses 1 and 2. He says there, Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. So this is an affirmation of what Asaph knows to be true. God is good to those, good, good to Israel, and good to those who are pure in heart. We might ask ourselves, well, what is, a, what is pure in heart? What does that look like? Well, I would just say it's, it's when your external actions match the internal condition of your heart. When both inside and outside match. When what you're longing for and desiring is right with what God has declared. It's when we're living a life that is pleasing to God. He has a pure heart. He says, but as for me, Asaph says, in contrast to who God is, I almost slipped. He said, I almost fell. He's clear here in these words that the problem was with him and not with God. I almost slipped. God is good to those who are pure in heart, but I slipped. I came this close to losing my faith, he says. And so with that introduction, Asaph launches into his testimony or his account of his near fall. And really, there's there's five parts of this story as I see it. And I, I put those out on that piece of paper. Hopefully that's helpful for you. But the first is this, Asaph's real observations. Asaph's real observations in verses 3 through 12. I believe in this part of the story, Asaph does two things. First, he explains why he came close to stumbling, how he almost lost his footing. We could say, look at verse 3 in your Bibles. He says, for I was envious of the arrogant. I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So we ask, why did he almost fall? Well, there it is. He was envious of the wicked. He saw the, pro- the prosperity in their lives and he wanted that. He wanted their life. He was longing for something, for prosperity, literally shalom. He was wanting peace that the wicked had and he didn't have it. So therefore he was envious of them. So just stopping right there, what are you wanting in life? What are some of the things that you're wanting in life right now that God hasn't yet given you or isn't giving you? And to think about that as we come to this text, what are we envious of? What are we longing for? And the second thing I think he does in these opening verses is he states the observations of the life around him. And the, I call these real observations because these are the, this is how life was unfolding around him. He's not delusional. He's not making things up. The wicked were prospering around him. So let's look at these verses. Verse, look with me in your Bibles at first, verse 4. He says this about the wicked. He says, there are no pains in their death and their body is fat. No pains in their death. He says their life, and both in life and in death, they're comfortable. They're at ease. And he says that their body is fat in the sense that, as you know, in many cultures in the world, it's, it's a sign of wealth and prosperity to be overweight. And he says, look at them. They're fat. They're healthy. They eat well. Verse 5, he says, they are not troubled as other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. You see, in Asaph's eyes, the wicked were prospering, and they were immune to the pain of the world. He said he was wondering, why are they prospering? Why are they not in pain like everyone else? Verse 6, therefore pride is their necklace. The garment of violence covers them. You see, they were were flaunting uh, their arrogance like someone might flaunt a new necklace at church on Sunday. They were flaunting their arrogance. And without any repercussion. And on top of that, they were were trafficking in violence on the earth. Verse 7 says, their eye bulges from fatness. 
and the imaginations of their heart run riot. You see, because of their wealth and prosperity, their, their eyes, it seems like we're constantly searching for more. What's next? What else could they have? And sort of bugging out in search of what the next thing was. Therefore, it says their, their imaginations of their heart, the wicked schemes of their hearts, knew, knew, knew no end. Verse 8, they mock and wickedly speak from oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue parades through the earth. So encompassed by their wealth and prosperity, what do the wicked do? They boast. They speak proudly against God, against heaven. They're proud. They're arrogant. And Asaph is taking note of all of this. Verse 10, therefore his people return to this place and waters of abundance are drunk by them. A difficult verse to understand, but I think it means this. Uh, the tragic consequence of all of this is that God's people were being influenced by the wicked. The seeming prosperity that made their, their, made their lifestyle, the lifestyle of the wicked, seemed attractive. And God's people were seeing this, and it was contagious to them. God's people drank it up, and they were taken away into sin. Look at verse 11. They say, how does God know? And is there knowledge with the Most High? Here the wicked are speaking again. They mock God. They're saying he doesn't know. He doesn't care. He's too distant. And they delude themselves into thinking that God is somehow limited. Verse 12, Behold, these are the wicked, and they're always at ease, and they've increased in wealth. He said, Asaph says, Behold. You could, you could maybe render that. Take a good look at the wicked. Look at them. Look at them out there. Here are the wicked. They're always at ease, he says. They're getting richer. The rich get richer. Their life is easy. They're increasing in wealth. And these were Asaph's real observations. We know in this life that sometimes sinful decisions bring about hard, evil consequences or destructive consequences. We could think of the proverb that says, the way of the transgressor is hard. So you see, sometimes in life when we make sinful decisions, we have bad consequences that come from them. But that wasn't happening here in this time. You see, these wicked were still prospering despite their wickedness. These were real observations in Asaph's life. And I think you could relate to this. Have you seen this? Have you seen people in your life who are prospering despite their rebellion against God? So this leads us to the next section, which I've labeled here, Asaph's nearsighted theological conclusions in verses 13 through 16. So after focusing on the wicked, now Asaph begins to focus on himself. Note the pronoun change here. These verses, especially verses 13 and 14, they just drip with self-pity. He says, Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence, for I have been stricken all day long and, and chastened every morning. So what does Asaph conclude from all of this? In the thoughts of his inner man, he reasons, Following God's commands have got me nothing in this life. It's all been a waste. I, I should have been paid back by now, God. You see, there's two theological errors that I think that Asaph is believing. The one is that he seems to think that his heart was pure. And we know it isn't. Later he'll say it was embittered against God. Here in this verse, it's clear that he has a low view of his own sin. His sin isn't a priority in his mind. He doesn't realize that all sin is a cosmic offense against our great God. So he thinks he was pure. Verse, or the second thing that I want you to, I think the wrong theological conclusion that he had made is that he thought God was bound to bless the righteous. He thought that God was somehow required to bless those who are righteous in this life, and simply God isn't. 
You see, Asaph held to a form of what we might call uh, divine retribution theology. And really, this is, this is the theology of Job's three friends in the book of Job. It's the expectation that God always blesses the righteous because they're righteous. And God always curses the wicked because they're, because they're wicked. But see, that, that simple formula doesn't quite work. You see, Asaph is saying, God, look, I'm in pain here. Can't you see that? My life is hard. And I've been obeying you. I've been going to church every Sunday. I've been praying. But my life is still hard, God. And I can remember a time in my own life where I had thoughts like this. Um, you see, I was, came to MSU to play football. I was a church-attending uh, Christian, Christ professor, we might say. I'd said the sinner's prayer more times than one could count. And yet in the middle of my first season here at MSU, I was in a car accident with three friends of mine, three guys who were all on the football team with me that I used to party with regularly. And, but the difference between me and them was uh, after partying, I would go to church on Sunday. You see, I was a Christian, and I knew that they weren't doing that. And so when we got in this car accident, and I was the only one who had serious injuries, I spent three days in the Butte Hospital, and they all walked away from it. And I remember wrestling with God, saying, you know, God, why did you do this? I'm the Christian in the car. Why, why, why didn't you hurt them? Why didn't you make them lose here and spend time missing out on the football season and all that? You, see, what, you, thought that would have, you may have thought that would have softened my heart, but it actually hardened my heart. This is where Asaph is. He's... He's expecting God to bless him just because he's righteous. And thankfully, verse 15, Asaph didn't voice these thoughts. He said, if I would, would have spoke thus, behold, I would have betrayed you the generation of your children. He realized that if he would have put these thoughts to words, it would have hurt others. It would have, it would have caused damage in the community. I mean, he was a, a Levite, after all, of godly heritage. And so verse 16 when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight. You see here, faced with the prosperity of the wicked and his own affliction, he's confused. He can't understand it. He's, he doesn't know where to go in his thoughts. And we say, well, why? Well, he's deriving his theology all from what's around him, all in his own head. He was deriving his theology from general revelation. And he needed a more clear word. What he needed is a special revelation at this point. This is a graphic illustration of the limitation of general revelation. Without a word from God, Asaph was stuck. But thankfully, God was going to invade. And we see that in the next section, Asaph's moment of conversion. Look at verse 17. I'll back up to 16 and read again. When I, when I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. You see here, Asaph struggled to understand the prosperity of the wicked and his own affliction, despite his own righteous character, until Asaph came into the sanctuary of God. He asked, well, what happened there? The sanctuary of God, literally sanctuaries of God, the holy places of God. And this may be a reference to the, the sort of the temple grounds, or the temple precinct, uh, but considering Asaph's life, it was probably prior to the construction of the temple, so maybe the tabernacle. But in this location, Asaph receives some, some form of revelation. In the very center of Israel, Israel's religion and their worship, somehow Asaph learns something new. Maybe he observed a priest offering a sacrifice, and it's there, and in that moment, something clicked in his mind that he hadn't realized before. Or maybe he, he observed a priest teaching, teaching the law of God. 
What he had failed to understand before now had become clear in his mind. He says, then he perceived the end of the wicked. He realized the internal destiny of the wicked. And so just as a stop here for a moment and imagine that you had never read the scriptures, you never been to church, you had no clue about God or who he was. How would you know the end of the wicked? How would you know what happens in, this ne- in the next life? You wouldn't know unless God revealed it to you. So the only reason that Asaph knows here is that God revealed it to him. It was Asaph's encounter with special revelation that led to his transformation. So now look at verses 18 through 20 and what I'm calling Asaph's accurate theological conclusions. We might call this Asaph's embrace of special revelation. Verses 18, 19, and 20 all depict the destruction of the wicked. And as we consider these words and we think about the wicked and the eternal destiny of the wicked, let us remember Psalm 14. It says, There is no one who does good. The Lord has looked down upon the sons of men to see if there's any who understand who seek after God. And he says, They've all turned aside. They have all become corrupt. Why is this important? Because apart from Christ's work in our life, Christ's work of redemption and the Holy Spirit's work of applying that work to our lives, we would all be in this condition in the wicked, having the destiny of the wicked. Look at these verses. Verse 18, you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. You see, people who have not tasted the redemption of Christ are the wicked. We know that. And they are in a precarious position, a slippery condition, the text says. Indeed, we might even say an insane position. They are completely unaware of, eternal, of eternity's calling upon their life. And soon they will slip into eternity. You see, the, the, the wicked will be cast down to destruction, the text says. In a swift moment, they will enter a place of, of conscious torment, of the weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, swept away with a tidal wave force brought into the next life, brought before the judge of the universe. And Asaph says that they'll be like a dream when one awakes. He likens, he likens their life to a dream when one awakes. I mean, think of that moment when you've been dreaming in your sleep and you wake up and that dream is still in your mind and you're trying to recall the details, but it's, it's evading you. And you're trying to grasp it and think about what occurred, but it's, it's almost gone before you know it. Asaph says that's what their life is like. And that's what they'll be like when they stand before the judge. And he says, God will despise them in that moment. The wicked, whether they were prosperous in this life or not, they will be despised by God on that day when they meet his wrath. Sometimes when I think about things like this, I envision life as like a great theater stage. Imagine this in your mind, a theater with a giant curtain pulled down. And all of us in life are, are living our life on the front side of that curtain. And we're playing our life out on the front side of that curtain. And behind that curtain is the eternal realities of heaven and hell. And just in a moment, people are pulled back behind that curtain and brought back into the reality of heaven and hell. And yet we live on the front side of that curtain acting like we don't know what's behind the curtain. And really, people who don't know God They are unaware of what's behind that curtain. But we of God's people, we know what's behind that curtain. But sadly, sometimes we live like we don't know what's behind the curtain. We we live like we 
we don't understand that God will in a moment swiftly take people away till their, to their eternity. You see, now Asaph sees the world as it really is. It's as if the blinders have been removed for him. He sees the wicked in light of eternity. And he sees himself in a new light. So this last section I've titled Asaph's Privileged Position. Asaph's privileged position, turning from the wickedness, or turning from the wicked now back to himself, Asaph mourns over his ignorance. He says, when my heart was embittered and I was pierced within, then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. You see, Asaph mentions the former bitterness of his heart. Like a, like a spear wounding one in the chest, he wrestled in pain over the misconceptions he had held before, and it rocked him to the very cord. He sees that he was before, he was devoid of any true spiritual discernment. His irrational musings were like a brute beast, he says. Why? Well, remember that he envied the wicked. He considered their life as more attractive than his. And now he repents over his past foolishness. Look how these words just drip with godly sorrow. Have you been there? Have you ever cried out to God over your past thoughts? maybe over your past prayers, the things that you've liked and said, oh God, forgive me for even wanting that. Verse 23, nevertheless, I'm continually with you. You have taken a hold of my right hand. I love that word, nevertheless. Nevertheless, despite of who I am and despite of all my ungrounded theological complaints against you, God, I am continually with you. It's not that God so much is with me. It's that I am with you. I'm in your presence. He says, you have taken a hold of my right hand. I love this. It's not, it's not that I reached up and grabbed God's hand. God reached down and took a hold of mine. He reached down and saved me out of the pit, pit of destruction. He says, God, you condescended. You came down and took a hold of my right hand. And it's not the other way around. If it were, if I took a hold of God's hand, surely I would have let go by now. But God in his sovereign grace came down and grabbed our hand, grabbed Asaph's hand. He says in verse 24, with your counsel, you will guide me. And afterward, receive me to glory. With your counsel, he says. This is a reference to the word of God. With your counsel. Asaph knew that his life from here on out would be guided by the word of God. And then he said, after that, I'll be received into glory. Verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire Nothing on earth. Now Asaph says, the sole object of my desire is the, is the eternal God. I just want to know him. When I go to heaven, that's who I want to be with. Surely Asaph had loved ones who had departed before him and gone on to glory. Asaph doesn't think of them now. He thinks of God. And he wants, I want to be with God in heaven. And he says, on this earth, I desire nothing but you. Think of that. Can we say that? Does your love for God and your desire for him supersede every other normal human earthly desire in your life? Is that true of me? Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. Verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and portion forever. See, our bodies will grow old and weak. Our, our minds will decay, but God will keep us forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed those who are unfaithful to you. Asaph says, take note, if, if you die resisting, to, resisting God, if you refuse to submit to him, you will perish. He says, but as for me, 
verse 28. The nearness of God is my good. I have made the Lord my God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. But as for me, he says, the nearness of God is my good. It's God's presence in my, in my life that is my only earthly good. Forget all the riches in the world. Forget all the things that I don't have and wish I had. He says, simply, the nearness of God is my good. This is Asaph's privileged position. The Lord is Asaph's refuge. And what is the result? Look at the end there, what he says, that I may tell of your works. The result is, I believe, evangelism. He's telling others about the riches of God, the works of God. From complaining about his lack of earthly prosperity or peace, he's now boasting in the works of God. Asaph has been completely transformed in this psalm. His heart is rendered anew. His worship is now right. His heart has been corrected. This is, the psalm, this is Psalm 73. And as we just look on this, there's just a couple notes that I want to make and then just sort of appropriate them to our lives. The key to Asaph's conversion here, the key to his heart transformation, is the word of God. I want you to see that. I've titled my message again, The Testimony of Asaph. This is the testimony of how his heart was changed. Look back at verses 16 and 17. He says, When I pondered to understand this, it was troublesome in my sight until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their, their end. Again, it's in the sanctuary of God that this happened. Let me give you five reasons why I believe that this, this is an encounter with the word of God. Number one, in the context leading up to these verses, there's several references to speaking, the wicked speaking. So verse 8 says, They mock, they, they wickedly speak, they speak from on high, they set their mouths against heaven, their tongue parades through the earth. Then Asaph even speaks, If I had said, if I would speak thus. So here in this, the wicked are speaking. Then Asaph joins in. And so now we're waiting for a word from God. A second reason is the, just the failure of general revelation to clearly convey who God is. General revelation wouldn't get Asaph here. Number three, a third reason why we can be certain that Asaph encountered the word of God in the sanctuaries of God is the role or the responsibility of the priest. With more time, I'd love to show you how it was the role of the priest to teach the ordinance of God to the people of Israel. See, the priests in ancient Israel were the teachers. It's very likely that he encountered the teaching of the word of God there in the sanctuary. Number four, fourth reason that I believe Asaph encountered the word of God uh, is in verse 24. He references the counsel of God as being what's going to guide him moving forward because he knows it's what, it's what got him out of the, the muck of the past was the counsel of the Lord. And finally, a, a final reason why I believe in Asaph encountered the word of God in the sanctuaries there is just a theological reason that we gain from the rest of the scriptures. The rest of the scriptures teach us that no one can come to Christ apart from God's word. And no one can be sanctified apart from God's word. Simply put, you cannot be saved apart from God's word. And you cannot grow in Christ at all apart from God's word. Think about this in light of conversion. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. 1 Peter 1, 23 says, you've been born again by the living, enduring word of God. Same things. James says, James 1.18, in the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. See, the conversion happens by knowing special revelation. And additionally, sanctification happens 
by the word of God. Again, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth, John 17, 17. First Peter 2, 2, he says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. We're to long for God's word so that we may grow by it. I mean, after all, are we not to live upon every word that God has spoken? Deuteronomy 8, Jesus quotes that to Satan, you'll recall. So why is this important to understand that Asaph is transformed by the word of God? Because sooner or later, we're going to find ourselves in that same situation. We're going to find ourselves with our hearts, for some reason or another, embittered against God. And we'll be wanting the wrong things in those moments. And in those moments, the desires of our hearts will be rising up in a form of mutiny against God. And we're going to have to go back to God's word to straighten out our own hearts. And as we dive into the word of God, uh, we'll be corrected there. And as you come to corporate worship Sunday mornings and sit under the preached word, it's there that you'll be rightly instructed. And as you sit down with a good friend who will counsel with you and open up God's word to you and say, do you see what God has said? Do you see how this applies to your life? That's what we need in those moments. We need the word of God to set us straight. You see, the answers to the problems in life come in God's word, in his inerrant, sufficient, inspired word. That's what we need. And finally, I want you to see here that when Asaph's heart was rightly aligned, he worshiped, and so should we. Verses 23 through 28 are some of the most precious, precious verses in all of the Bible. I love those words. Um, here we see a man enraptured or enthralled with who God is. Uh, I remember a time in my life of discovering Psalm 73. It was a couple years after I was converted again at MSU playing football. And you see, playing, at, playing football at MSU, there was so much hype involved with that, so much students looking up to you professors talking about the game you played the week before, fans talking about you, cheering you on, everyone looking up to you. And I remember as, as just a young Christian, just, just wanting to put all that outside of my head. The temptation was there, so much there to think about myself, to worship myself. And I remember coming to Psalm 73 and writing this on the back of play sheets and pregame reminders, because I wanted the words of Psalm 73 in my head as I left the tunnel. Because I don't want to think about other things. I want to think about God and who he is. And I just pray that that's our, that would be all of our hearts, that we would all be saying, whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. You see, friends, we need to know that one day we'll all see that eternal reality. We'll all be there. And when the curtains are pulled back on those days, for our friends around us who don't know Christ, the silence will be deafening. And so I just pray, Lord, that if there's any of us who don't know Christ in that way, that this would be the day that we see that the curtains are pulled back, that you see that eternal reality in a new light, that you consider Christ and who he is. And then furthermore, that you look and you see Asaph and go, that's right, that's a heart rightly worshiping God. And that we would join in and say, we are very privileged. No matter how this life turns out, what God gives us, we are in a privileged position we know that God has so clearly demonstrated his love for us in a way that Asaph didn't even. We have God's love for us demonstrated for us in the cross and in the crucifixion of his son, Jesus Christ. Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We have a better picture than Asaph of God's love for us. So we should join in and worship with Asaph. So with, with that, let's close in prayer. 
Dear Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for this text. I just, I just rejoice in it. Lord, so often even my own heart gets embittered against you for silly things. Or my own heart goes after desiring other things. And Lord, I'm sure that's true of these people here, Lord. I just pray that in those moments that we would recall Asaph's testimony, how his heart was transformed and rightly aligned to worship you. God, we all need correction again and again. So Lord, I just pray you'd humble our hearts before your word so that we could see this world rightly, that we could live with the reality of eternity in our minds, and that we could give you the worship that you so deserve and are worthy of. Lord, may we pray, whom do we have in heaven but you, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. May that be true of us, Lord. And we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.